But the first big one was the Vaporfly, actually, the Vaporfly 4%. Hello and welcome back to The Big Run. Today's guest is Fabricio da Costa. Fabricio popped up on Instagram recently showcasing some of the projects he's worked on, including some very big hitters from a certain brand with a big tick under its name. Originally from Brazil, he was a professional skateboarder using his sponsorship money to fund his education into design. He's worked on some extraordinary projects, has an incredible insight. And for this special edition episode, I've collaborated with Vaporfly Worldwide to put out the call for questions for Fabricio. So a big thank you to all of you who sent in your questions. I put them to him towards the end of the episode. We cover so much here, how he was a professional skateboarder, how his first shoe design was a skateboard shoe, making cricket boots whilst working at Nike, and of course, working on the Alphafly V2, the Streakfly, and generally what it's like being a designer at Nike. I'm extraordinarily grateful to Fabricio and again for the questions from Vaporfly Worldwide. I'll stop yapping on and get to the episode. So Fabricio, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. We're really excited to, to get stuck into to your story, your work as a designer and some of the iconic shoes that you've uh, worked on and, and developed and brought to fruition. We we put a call out via another Instagram account, Vaporfy Worldwide, for questions for you. And we've kind of been inundated with, with so many people curious to know um, and get a sort of insight into that process. But before we get to that, I just had a little quick look on your Instagram before I jumped on this call. I always like to do that. Can you talk me through dystopian cyborg apes a little bit? Is that something that you're currently working on or is that kind of testament to the kind of uh, things you're interested in as a designer? <laughs> That's funny you asked that. <laughs> I posted that last night, I think. No, it's just uh, this is something new. Uh, that that IG account, is it is sort of a a new account I have just for my professional work. You know, I have a personal account as well. So I wanted to split content between personal and professional. Mm -hmm. uh, so that one is just for creative stuff and portfolio or launches or products I designed that I post there. So anyway, regarding that, that's just AI art. You know, I've been using uh, Mid Journey. Anybody listening to this uh, that is in the creative industry or is a creative, you're probably using that tool now. Uh, it is like a beta testing uh, AI engine tool that you can create art based on prompt on words, pretty much designing art with words, art or products or whatever concepts. So I've been just playing with different things, you know, from shoes to just art, just random things to learn how to use the tool. It's just AI art. Pretty That's much. very, very cool. So for the, so for the uninitiated then who perhaps aren't familiar with it, so you keyed in those three words, dystopian, cyborg, apes, and then it sort of like produces these images where if, if, if people are listening to this one, I don't know whether it'll be on your Instagram yeah. by the time this goes live, but it produces these images. Like what's the turnaround time? Does it spit them out quite quickly? Yeah, it's it's quite quick uh, for the most part, uh, at least mid-journey. There's other tools out there. There's a Dell E as well. I'm waiting for my invite, but this one works fine. It's a few seconds to be honest, depending on how complex you're, your your prompt is prompt is like the words you put in the description it could be like a ton of different words or just a very simple like one word you spit out like art concepts uh you can be very specific about what you want to get out of it as well again i'm just learning i'm not used to 
creating ideas or creating art or concepts or just inspirational images based on words, you know, um, not like that. So it is a learning curve, but, uh, there was actually probably more words than those I posted. Uh, those are just the highlights, you know, sometimes I put more specific, like dystopian city blurred in the background and stuff like that, you know, mm. uh, or, uh, and then you start getting like four, you get four images out of your prompt and then you can start picking, selecting, one of those or all of those and then you can upscale them to add more definition or improve the quality uh or just keep iterating or you can create more variations on one of the images you like so it's an endless possible you can keep like iterating as much as you want mm. if you like one of the images you can keep like just like art you do one sketch like designing a shoe does one sketch and you take that sketch and you evolve it until you render it it's pretty much sort of that you know it's like uh, it's a creative iteration process. It's super interesting as well, just seeing like, but for people listening, there's sort of this, I can see sort of like Japanese kind of samurai armor over these, these yeah. like quite imposing, intimidating looking uh, gorillas and, and apes sort of over this neon sort of cityscape sort of blurred in the background. It's quite a, it's quite an interesting thing. And I love that idea of yeah AI kind of art, because I, I suppose for you as a designer, speaking of like the, evolution of art there's another huge topic of debate around sort of nfts and and stuff like that is that something like as a creative you're you're exploring as well as sort of ar we will get to shoes and listeners don't worry but i'm just curious for you as a <laughs> as, as a designer like is is that something that you're curious yeah. about yeah for sure i am actually part of a crew called medium uh from jesse former adidas guy and uh, i am part of that crew and it is not going to get into like the details of it, but it does have, you know, a lot of relation to NFT, blockchain and all that. It is like a creative collective sort of or a creative union where a lot of creatives were invited to be part of it. And then we're, you know, they're start it's pretty new. So there's not a lot of content out there yet. There's just ramping up the platform. But yeah, I am involved. I haven't done anything officially yet in the NFT world, but it is on my radar. I'm just trying to find the time and the right project to, to initiate something. But yeah. Mm, it's so exciting and you say there that your particular thing you're involved in is is sort of super new the whole space i know maybe there's a there's there's a, there's a couple of years involved in it but the whole space feels so kind of furtive and and new and exciting i'm just fascinated by it and i wonder whether there will be a i don't know whether major shoe brands will enter into it in a really kind of creative way i know some there's been some stuff done like i know like kipchoge has minted some nfts of various images and stuff but i'd be interested to see sort of the bigger brands um, delve into that world and do it in a kind of unique, uh, creative way. But anyway, I digress. Maybe we'll come back on to NFTs. It might kind of think it just piqued my interest there. So I'm curious then uh, to, to wind back a little bit and sort of trace your journey as, as a designer. So, you know, you put in those particular prompts for the, for the AI generative art that you, you, we were talking about at the start, but like, where did your kind of first interest in design and and art kind of start for you well my design career started like uh, before i even went to college to get a formal education in design in product design that's my background mm -hmm. um I have, but uh, it started actually in skateboarding i'm a former pro skater from brazil i was born in brazil became a u.s citizen so i do citizenship but uh, my whole skate career was all down here in south america um through skateboarding and creativity off the culture of skateboarding, that's, you know, how I started in design pretty much, even before school. So I was already like interning uh, for one of my sponsors uh, in their studio part-time 
uh, just to learn, you know. I got invited, hey, you want to come in and help and provide insights? I know you know how to use the tools, you know. I learned how to use, like, creative tools by myself, like drawing, tagging, just customizing my, my, my skateboard, my shoes, um, programs and stuff like that. I learned it all by myself, you know. And uh, that's how it started. Then I went to college and got a formal education. And um, I didn't design, I didn't start designing running shoes specifically until I got the job at Nike in 2005. Uh, until then, honestly, I wasn't involved in running at all. Uh, I always enjoyed uh, sports, you know, traditional sports. I played basketball and I surfed my whole life. In skate- but it was mostly both board sports, surfing and skateboarding. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, so that's sort of how it started. And then I took it from there. I got I graduated. It started like skateboarding brands from scratch. Uh, I was an entrepreneur early on in my career. I uh, had a design studio for a few years and then got the job at Nike and I was there for like 15 years wow. between uh, some for three years in Sao Paulo working for Latin America doing a lot of like um, specific projects for Latin America based in Brazil and then got transferred to WHQ in Portland in Beaverton um, and was there for like uh, 12 years wow and we'll we'll get to that because it's it's ripe but and you said at the start that this Instagram account is is re- relatively new, and that's how you popped up on my particular radar. But there's not a great deal of information out there for you. And I, I had no idea that you were also a pro skateboarder as well. I mean, that's that's extraordinary, and that you also you learnt off through your own um, curiosity the sort of skills that you would then take on as a designer before going to college and getting the sort of formal qualification so many questions off that response so like talk us through your life as a, as a pro skateboarder like what was that like and also kind of teaching yourself these kind of creative tools whilst also being a professional skateboarder do you think that set you up so that when it came time to get the formal qualifications you kind of knew exactly what it was that you wanted to do yeah, for sure. It was a lot easier for me, actually, to when I went to college, I was already like working in the studio part part time. Uh, and that gave me a lot of advantages, right? I knew exactly what I wanted. I was like serious about getting the education. A lot of kids go to school and oftentimes they're not like dedicated enough. You know, design is a pretty, pretty hard thing to do in general. You know, if you don't have passion and enough hours dedicated to it and, you know, a lot of yeah, a lot of dedication. There's no other word for it. You can be super talented and know how to draw from since you were a little kid, but you've got to dedicate yourself to master the craft. You know, it's going to take you a lot of hours. You know, a lot of people say it takes, I forgot how many hours, but there's, there's like a, some sort of research. Oh, the 10,000 hours or something, isn't it? The Malcolm yeah, Gladwell thing. Yeah, something Ten, like that. Yeah. yeah. Any, anything you want to learn and be really good at it, there's just that many hours you need to put on. And design is one of those where it's also very um specialized uh profession right it started as a very like one thing like oh design graphic design product design now it's like super specialized and segmented you know and now you got physical objects digital design which they call product design uh, which is also confusing um so you have all these different things and uh in the sorry if i got a little like if i started mixing different things but uh on, no, the, no. on my answer here but uh yeah, if I start going on a tangent, but um, yeah, I was just saying it's very specialized. And the reason why I think I got into footwear design specifically was I knew exactly what I wanted to do, right? In college, my graduation project, last year of design school, you do like a graduation project mm-hmm. um, or in Portuguese, they call TC. 
uh, I don't know in English how they call it. Actually, there's probably an acronym. But um, I graduated in Brazil, by the way, product design in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, so you do that project and you choose your subject. You can do whatever you want, right? And I chose a skate shoe. I'm mm-hmm. like, dude, I'm already working on this. I want to do research. I want to do more academic and go deeper on the research. And I actually wrote my project had like a 120 pages book of research and academic, right? project Mm. um but i was already designing you know starting to design shoes actually my first footwear design project was my own pro model for my sponsor you know uh it was like a skateboarding brand they made they had a shoe division like oh you want to want to give you a pro model and you're going to design it uh i'm like okay sounds cool i didn't know what i was doing i learned by doing it very empiric you know it wasn't academic or like professionally trained at all which honestly, it is the case for a lot of dudes out there, including successful footwear designers. Uh, you think they went to a fancy school. There's a few dudes out there that you probably heard their names that they never went to design school. They just learned by working in the industry, working, putting a lot of hours, a lot of passion into the craft, you know, and learning how to do it. But of course, that's the exception nowadays. That's probably 5% of all footwear designers. But there's a lot of those out there, especially now with all these tools, right? They're available to everyone. It's a lot easier to uh, have the tools at your disposal or technology for for designing nowadays, right? From like Gravity Sketch to all the programs and just if you want to learn how to do this and that by hand, you can Google and go to a YouTube video and learn. Back when I started, like there was none of that, right? It was like, mm. you know, old school design school and stuff like that. But anyway, but that that was one component. The other one is just, like I said, uh, yeah, I was a pro skater, but I'm not a pro skater at all anymore. I'm, I don't, I'm not that good anymore. I still skate, you know, as much as I can, but I lost a lot of my, you know, my skills. But um, yeah, I was a pro skater from uh, 19 or let me see what year did I turn pro 1993 maybe until 2005 when I got the job at Nike I decided to focus only on the yeah only on design I was splitting my time between the two I went to college I paid for college with my you know sponsorship money that I made from skateboarding uh in Brazil so I'm a designer thanks to my career in skateboarding I actually got the job at Nike the recruiter um, grabbed their attention. I grabbed their attention because of my background in pro skateboarding, you know, just being part of that culture. Not only because I was pro, but just because I lived, you know, in street culture and skateboarding culture, which is super influential outside of skateboarding, right? It mm. influences a bunch of things, yeah. uh, including fashion and all that, like uh, streetwear that we call these days. Back in the days, it was called skatewear. So, um yeah so anyway so that was honestly i think i got that job in grand, grand, big part because of my background otherwise i would be another designer looking for a job at nike and uh i think nobody ever told me that but i think that was one of the reasons you know maybe yeah. probably 50 percent of the reason i got that job was because of my background <laughs> i'm sure as well like your your talent your creativity and vision was a, was a component of it but yeah talk about a way of like standing out to a recruiter is to sort of say that you know, most people pay for their university or college tuition, maybe working in a particular fast food restaurant or, or washing cars or some sort of benign, but like sort of paying for it by being yeah. a pro skateboarder is a, is a pretty cool way yeah. to, to fund yourself through, through your education. I'm just curious, just to roll back to one thing you were saying that your first shoe design was a skateboard shoe. Like, 
And I'm interested in that kind of design process from you actually as a skateboarder, as an athlete, you know, having that kind of feedback of like, oh, it doesn't fit right here or I wish it did X, Y, Z. Like, was that part of your kind of design process when you were first making that shoe? And have there been, you know, moments because you said that you, you're not a massive runner, like where you've kind of had to sort of maybe do a bit more running so that you could kind of get under the skin of a particular design problem you've been presented with? Yes, yes. Yeah, coming from that background where, Honestly, I started designing specifically shoes because I didn't like most of the shoes they had in the industry locally mm. in Brazil, right? Most of the good shoes were imported, were like from American brands for the most part. And a lot of the local brands didn't have really good product. I'm like, dude, there's an opportunity and I want to make better product for my culture, you know? Same thing with a lot of runners that cobble things or they want to become designers because they love what they do and they want to create better product for, for them <laughs> and mm. their, their culture, their crew. Same idea. So it came from passion, right? It came from a place of uh, it's 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 true. You know, it's real. It's authentic. It's not like oh, I just want to be a designer because I want to design cool things. My case, it came from that. So uh, I don't remember everything that went into the process to design my first uh, my first and only pro model. Uh, it was only the upper as well, by the way, which was really good to learn. Mm. Uh, it was like a cup sole, a cup sole skate shoe. Um, and, uh, they say, oh, we have to use the same tooling. So from, you know, from the start, I couldn't change it like as much as I wanted, you know, I designed a new upper, uh, it was, you know, okay. Again, first project, right. I wasn't even a formal designer. I didn't mm. know anything about footwear manufacturing technology. I was just drawing, sketching a sneaker and trying to solve problems, you know, around things I liked aesthetically and functionally, but it wasn't a super, technical shoe where I was able to like change the last change the cushioning system it wasn't that at all uh the process was very like intuitive I was just talking to the guy at the factory uh developer manufacturing and all that and just uh providing like insights and drawings and just going from there so it's very basic you know footwork design development uh, process but again Sure, I did testing. It wasn't like extensive testing in labs and all that like we do it these days or like I did at Nike for a lot of the projects. But it was a starting point and uh, it was a really cool experience. And I definitely used that experience, always used that experience to design any other product that I had no idea, you know, about the sport. Like I designed actually a cricket boot uh, for, <laughs> the, for the cricket uh, World Cup in India in 2000 nine maybe yeah when i moved to the u.s one of my first projects uh they gave me like a cricket boot um for the specifically for for other nike players right to where i was it's a long story but anyway i had no idea about cricket right coming from brazil or even the u.s you don't know anything about cricket right you probably do yeah British, a little but, bit yeah over the uk um, yeah. <laughs> yeah well well you know enough i had no idea at all and so anyway there was no time to talk to the players so I had to find a way to connect through like, I, I talked to, uh, I used to work with Chris Cook, you probably heard his name before, mm -hmm. uh, OG developer, innovator, and Nike runner, uh, good friend of mine. Anyway, so he's from, he's from Britain as well. Uh, and he knew cricket, he knew the players because he worked on the first project. Anyway, I'm just trying to tell the story to say that same happened with running, right? I, I wasn't a runner. I got the job at Nike. You're like, okay, one of the projects was to design the new upper for a racing shoe that was made in Brazil only for Brazil. And so I had to go out there and actually I ran a couple of 10 Ks with no training. Actually, it wasn't probably a good idea, but anyway, <laughs> I was just, I was healthy and fit. So I'm yeah. like, okay, skinny, you know, I'm, I'm a skater. Okay. I can do it. I did it. 
but I did it more to learn, you know, to experience that, mm. you know, the racing environment, uh, and then talking to the runners uh, and grabbing, getting insights, talking to internal guys at Nike that were actually runners. So um, just that mindset of, you know, you, you have to immerse yourself in the culture and the sport to actually learn and experience that firsthand. I don't think it's enough to just, I mean, of course, some sports you can really do that, but we're running I mean, it's not that complicated, right? I mean, in theory, you just put a shoe and you run. Um, of course, you don't do that if you're a professional runner or a serious runner, but I was just trying to learn. So um, so that's sort of my, my mojo for most things. You know, I have to immerse myself in the culture and the sport and experience that and uh, if I can, right? Mm, I, I'm, I'm curious if that is like a foundation, like uh, in terms of your creative process, in terms of, yeah, like you say, it's it's immersion, but... There's also it seems like there's a like a there has to be like a real curiosity that sort of spares that that want to immerse yourself in like can can you trace where that comes from if that is a characteristic like that you would say that you have as a, as a designer like can you trace that sort of curiosity like a cricket boot like okay I don't know the sport but like I've got to be really like curious to to really immerse myself in this world or, or running like is there can you trace the lineage of of where that comes from for you as a designer um, I think it comes from a big part. I mean, first, I mean, every designer has to be a curious person, any creative person. I mean, anybody could be a creative person, mm. theory, right? But if you want to be creative, you have to be curious. I mean, you have to be a tinker. You have to be a maker. You have to be someone that will take things apart and learn how they function. If you're trying to solve a problem and seriously innovate or come up with anything new, aesthetically or functionally, right? You have to be curious. So that's just, uh, you have to be that way. Um, in my case, I think it also came from skateboarding culture, just DIY, you know, mm. do things yourself. You know, there wasn't no, like back in the days, there was no skate shoes, like, like long eighties, right? Seventies, eighties. It was all like b-ball shoes, Chuck Taylors, Jordan ones, basketball shoes for the most part, you know, or training shoes. Um, so we adopt things and transform them into things that work for us. And that comes out of curiosity also because, I grew up immersed in streetwear and fashion and there's also that side, you know, curious about how to style yourself and create that look and then go out and skate. I mean, the same for runners, right? You have to feel good when you mm -hmm. go for a run, not only like sensation wise, where you put the shoes on, it feels really good and you really connect it to the footwear, but everything, socks, shorts, everything, right? Your whole gear, your whole look have to be good. Um, Cause you're going to be out there running in the streets, you know, there's mm -hmm. no, it's the same thing. It's just different style, different problem, uh, and in different mindset in a little bit. But I think it came from that just curiosity to also to learn tricks, you know, mm -hmm. um, back in the days, uh, there was also that side back in the days, there was no like iPhones or like high res cameras, right? Nobody, not in my circle. Maybe one friend had a camera. So it's not like you were like filming yourself or filming your friends and learning from that. Same for running, right? You could have someone film you running so you can analyze your pace, the way you're striking, how your biomechanics look like. I mean, if you want to, you can, right? In slow-mo, in like high-res with very little money. Uh, back then, there was none of that. So it's a lot of like curiosity and just watching like shitty VHS videos mm. from the US for the most part and just trying to learn tricks, you know, by watching those, just doing those tricks and, and learning from that. I think it came from that as well. I love that. I just, yeah, it's really interesting. I think that's a really good connection that the sort of skate culture of just like hammering a trick until you could get it, like keep bash, bashing away, trying to land a particular trick or watching it on a, on yeah, a kind of cruddy kind of VHS video as well to see if you can master it. 
fascinating. So much there. And I feel like the, 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 the skate culture is a whole other podcast. I feel like we've got to get you back for like, you know, episodes two, three, and four. There's, there's so much to kind of jump into, but I know a lot of people would be very curious to know about working for, working for Nike for the, for the big swoosh. Like, I mean, there's, there's so much to kind of unpack there. So you started off, you were, you were in Brazil and your first project was, you said earlier, it was a, it was an upper for a, a particular shoe that was going to be released just purely in that territory. But then a few years later, you kind of located to the, to the main HQ. I mean, what was that like? I mean, I, I imagine as, as a skateboard, I don't know, was it, was Nike SB around when you were skating? Were you familiar with Nike? Were you familiar with its legacy when you arrived at the HQ, when you sort of got there properly? No, SB was around as a brand new uh, division in Nike. I started in Nike end of 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, SB started, I think, 2003. Maybe. Okay. Um, so it's pretty new. Uh yeah, before moving full time to the US, actually when I got hired to work at the, Nike used to have these like design pods, like international design pods. Mm. Uh, one of them was here in Sao Paulo uh, for Latin America. There was another one in Tokyo for Asia Pacific and uh, one in Shanghai, I think, and one in Amsterdam, close to Amsterdam in Huberson. So, and we had, they had, you know, design, international designers based there. So I got hired to work in Brazil, but I first moved to the US for six months to work in, at the WHQ and, and learn about the company, the process, create a network. Um, and when I when I lived there, when I first got hired for six months, I got to know everyone in SP, right? I mean, automatically. Because also a lot of the writers in Brazil, the three top pros in Brazil for Nike SP were all my friends, you know, mm. people I grew up with. Because uh, I was part of the, you know, I was one of them, you know, I was a first kid into them. So these were all like childhood friends. Um, one of them actually used to live with me. Uh, so that was an instant connection, right? So I created that connection with SB. It was definitely my dream job and Nike and actually had that, that, that opportunity. I did a bunch of projects like energy, um, like projects, energy meaning, you know, special edition dunks and other SB shoes for Latin America. So I started that connection there on the work. And then when I lived there, I used to skate with everyone and became good friends with everyone. They're still my friends to this day. Uh, and then I worked for SB actually full-time for four years, designing, doing like signature models, uh-huh. uh, innovation, and a bunch of other stuff uh, until I moved to running. Uh, yeah, in Brazil, uh, in the studio here, we did, like I said, uh, mostly products designed for Latin America, made in Latin America. So a lot of these projects were done, we call them local for local, Mm -hmm. meaning you design for the local market and you make it here. So yeah, one of the shoes, uh, one of the first projects, at least in running, was this uh, racing shoe upper, uh, a popular racing shoe they had here and they need an update on the upper. Uh, What was the shoe? Interesting. I don't, uh, it was called the Lightning Okay. Um, the name was probably different. I don't know if you're going to find it. You, honestly, the end result wasn't that great. I don't even show my portfolio. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, functionally, I think it was, just visually. Uh, anyway, it's a long story. But, um, and then, yeah, but then I moved to, so I was here, like I said, for two and a half years, I think, or three years. Six months in the U.S., three years here, and then I got transferred back to WHQ to work with the running team, but I was actually focused on emerging markets. 
which was all the countries below the equator, mm-hmm. Australia, South Korea, all Latin America, India. That's why I got to do the, the cricket boot because I was working for emerging markets. Uh-huh. And uh, the cricket boot was mainly for the Indian players for the World Cup gotcha. uh, or any Nike athlete in New Zealand, India, uh, Australia. And then that's why I got to do that boot. Uh, and then I was there, uh, but I, I used to work with the running team. So I was with the running design team, global design team, but doing projects for emerging markets from like running, performance running, lifestyle running, cricket, SB, anything. It was like cross category. That's how they call it. Like you're going across different categories. So it wasn't like a focus in running, running all the time. Um, and then after that, I got the job in SB four years. And then after four years in SB, I had the opportunity to move to running advanced or inline innovation uh, to work with uh, Shane Kohatsu, uh, Chris Cook, and the rest of the team there. And it was a yeah, great opportunity. Uh, then I got I got the opportunity to actually immerse myself in the innovation, you know, running innovation with the running innovation team, NXT team, and the rest of the crew there. And uh, it was great. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, R- running advanced. Uh, yeah, there's there's immediately a few products that sort of pop into the brain when you mention that title. But just to go back a little bit over some of the things you said there, there's, again, I feel like, yeah, there's got to be like an SB uh, episode because that's just such a huge subject in of itself. But um, I'm curious to know, like when you said you were kind of working across uh, different disciplines in terms of the sports that you were working, like SB and then the cricket boot and stuff like that. Were there ever sort of innovations or design ideas that were influenced from one sport to another, like little kind of details that you would carry over that worked well or kind of complemented another sport in a different way when it came to footwear that you were working on? For sure. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the technologies and the new innovations that Nike does, usually it starts with uh, sometimes or most of the time, it starts with like one sport, like running, basketball, the, the big ones, right? The big categories that mm-hmm. Nike, they have more funding, they have more funding and have actually actually bigger teams in innovation. So basketball, running, uh, football, global football, not American football. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to say soccer, you're British. Uh, I'm going to say the right way. Football. It's not called soccer, by the way, American fellas. Uh, yeah. Anyway, you should be calling that football. Yeah. American football. You don't kick the ball very often, right? You tackle, you run with the ball in your hand. So anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, so those categories have more money. Uh, and more funding and bigger teams. So a lot of these innovations come out of those categories. And then yeah. the other smaller categories, for the most part, they adopt, they adapt, right? They learn. We Nike launches in the big categories, and then it happens all the time if you pay attention, right? Like a new fit system like Flywire, it started in basketball, um, and then and then spread through like running and all the other categories, and even skateboarding ended up using Flywire. So there's definitely... Because it's all about like, especially technologies that are like toolbox technologies or like fit systems, cushioning systems that it can be applied to to any sport because every sport you need cushioning. You need a fit system, right? Of Mm. some some shape or form. Um, So it is very common and definitely, uh, yeah, in designing like signature skate shoes. My first signature skate shoe for, for SB the project BA for Brian Anderson, uh, I, I came from, I was doing designing running shoes for emerging markets. So I'm like, you know, first thing I thought, okay, let's, you know, use like a running last in the, in the skate shoe because it fits better. Uh, it's super sleek. So it took like a racing running last from the Lunar Racer and we changed it for skateboarding. It started from a running last, actually made a skate shoe. Uh, and the fit system, dynamic fit system in the midfoot 
with like uh, free flowing bands, right? To hug your foot on the midfoot and give you more of an adaptive midfoot fit. It came from running as well, but I made in a way we we designed it for skateboarding. But that fit, that idea, that concept of the fit system came from running. So That's so cool. Yeah, there, there's endless there's endless like examples. I mean, every designer in Nike ends up using you know tools or technologies or or, or ideas from other sports and applying to to a different sport. I love that. It's so it's so it's so interesting. I love that cross pollination of of different sports kind of complementing each other when it comes to design. And you, you mentioned that word fit, fit system there. And, you know, we there's lots of content out there where, like in shoe reviews and stuff, and they'll mention something very casually like, uh, oh, let's look at the design of the upper or let's have a look at the design of the fit system. But I always think there's there's so much, surely a lot more engineering and construction that goes into something so that when you slip it on your foot, it feels comfortable and effortless and, and like incredible. So like when you're dealing with something specifically like a fit system on a particular shoe, like... Like, what is the level of construction involved in making something like that? Are there different, like, how many different pieces are there? I don't quite have the vernacular to describe what it is that I'm trying to articulate, but, like, is there quite a level of engineering involved when you're dealing with something like a fit system, particularly for a running shoe? Uh, for sure, yeah. I mean, it all depends on what you're trying to achieve, right? It's never one thing. It's usually, like, a combination of things, right? Like, what kind of running shoe? Is it a training shoe? Is it like a, a, a you know a racing shoe or a, a training slash racing shoe like the fly like the zoom fly mm-hmm. for example or is it a shoe to run long distances and, and and train long distances and not get hurt like the epic react uh, to avoid injuries in runners which was a project I was part of early on in the innovation phase um, so it all depends it starts from there and then yeah what kind of last you're using what you're trying to achieve right is that a snug fit that makes the shoe fit you know, to your foot and disappear in your foot like and not feel uncomfortable, especially for long-distance running, for example. It happened before, right? Nike doing like flywire shoes, super minimal flywire shoes and mm-hmm. those cables like embossing on your foot because <laughs> you're running for like hours right, mm-hmm. in a marathon. And then so things like that. So it all depends. And then you try things, you know, they, in theory, they seem nice and you test it and sometimes it doesn't really work. But it's definitely, there's a, definitely a lot of engineering and design involved to come up with, you know, a great fit system, which is definitely one of the key components on any shoe, right? The shoe doesn't fit right. Mm -hmm. It's uncomfortable. You're not going to like it. You know, Nike or any brand can tell you, oh, this is awesome. This is the best material. It's this and that technology and create all these novel, novel, you know, stories and the beautiful campaign. But if you put it on uh, and it doesn't fit right, doesn't feel comfortable, you're not going to have a good experience, you know? So, um, yeah, and there's definitely a lot of different types of fit systems. Like a high top is one thing. For basketball is one thing. You have to understand the biomechanics and what you're actually solving for to then come up with the system, right? Mm, yeah, what's the problem that you're you're addressing? It's so important. Like first, like you say, first impressions count. If the shoe fits, like if it does feel good, then your yeah. experience will be greatly elevated. So I yeah. just went off on a, on a slight tangent there. I, I'm also slightly guilty of of tangents sometimes. I was just curious to know about the sort of engineering side of it. So Running advanced then, you you kind of made it to that particular department. So what was the first project that was kind of um that had your kind of stamp put on it? What was the first thing that you you started working on when you'd kind of made it to that department and you were working with those particular people that you mentioned earlier, like Chris Cook and stuff like that? 
Um, yeah, I mean, the first project, if I remember right, or one of the first, it's never one project, there's usually two or three. Mm. <laughs> um, but the first big one was the Vaporfly, actually, the Vaporfly 4%. Okay. Uh, the whole break into, <laughs> the break into collection. Yeah, that was, uh, which I was part of. It was an ongoing project. We had already started in the NXT Innovation Department, which is the big R&D department at Nike for innovation. Our team was more of a special ops innovation team. In between, we sat with the inline team, which is the team that designs all the commercial seasonal products for Nike running. And then we sat with them, but we're like a separate unit linked to NXT Innovation and inline at the same time. We're like in between, covering different gaps you had, different opportunities you had in the market or in the product line to create innovations that NXT couldn't handle. So in that context, uh, I got the project. Another designer had already started the upper or tried to do an upper that didn't really work for a lot of different reasons for the Vaporfly. And NXT was already working on the concept, uh, the Vaporfly Elite version that they wore Kip Shogi and the other two guys wore in the Breaking 2 event in mm -hmm. Monza, right? So, but that was only for the athletes. So that created, through that uh, innovation process, NXT innovation process, which the product, the whole project started there, right, in NXT. And then we got, we got put in the project when they had already started. They already had the foam. Uh, they were still figuring it out, but the foam, the Zoom X foam was already there as one of the key ingredients, right? Uh, the plate and all that and then we got uh put in the project well i got put in the project to continue and actually design the shoes that we were going to sell you know the shoes that were going to hit the market which was the vapor five four percent and then uh, after they decided to make the zoom fly uh that came as an afterthought to be honest that's the real story uh it wasn't in the brief initially but like, oh we need like you know a more commercial lower price point more digestible fast training slash racing uh, version of the Vaporfly, and that's how the Zoomfly came to life uh, during the process already, during the design development process that came and became part of the collection. So that was my first uh, very challenging, super exciting project. Uh, uh, easier, it was a little easier for me to, like I said, I already knew, you know, some about running, not at that level, not like a high, you know, disruptive innovation for long distance running, such as the, the Breaking 2 collection. Mm. Uh, but with Chris Cook and the rest of the team around me, it was, uh, was easier, you know, to, to get it done. And uh, timelines are crazy. It was a pretty chaotic process, you know, short timelines, tight timelines, uh, lofty goals, right? Delivering those products for uh, the Vaporfly 4% uh, that, worked, that I worked on was actually worn by the Pacers in the Breaking 2. And the three runners wore the elite version with a flying it upper. And that was the was that the main difference between the versions that that would eventually become the the kind of the commercial versions to the elite ones was it was the upper was the main thing that was different. Um, the tooling was different as well. Um, yeah, it was uh, the ingredients on the tooling were the same, mm -hmm. like the Zoom X foam and the, the carbon plate were the same or sort of the same. The plate was a little different in the Elite because it was customized for Kipchoge and the auto runner, Lelisa and the, the auto runner. Uh, so they made custom versions of that shoe for them. So I think, if I remember right, the plates for the Elite version, they were a little uh, less or more stiff for uh, customized for them. I uh. think that was one of the, the differences. Uh, I think the fit as well was a little custom on the Elites for the event. Not it was never sold that way, right? Mm. It was just for the event. 
uh, so they could, you know, uh, break the two-hour uh, mark. Um, but then, yeah, and then the Pacers wore the commercial version or a prototype of what was going to become the commercial version of the Vaporfly 4%. So what was your process that, I mean, oh my Fabrizio, there's, there's so much there. Oh God, this is, this is so ripe. Like there's, there's so much to unpack there. Like, so just to go back to, cause there's the, the two products there, the commercial version that would then be sold. And then the ones for the elites, you, you mentioned then about how the carbon had been slightly almost tuned for the, for the elite athletes. So was there an element that you could kind of customize the sort of level of rigidity within the carbon based on the feedback from the athlete as in, Oh, it feels a bit too stiff or I, I need a bit more flex in it. Could, were they able to sort of, dial in that that sort of um that pop almost in the carbon based on what the athlete was telling them yeah yeah for sure uh, i wasn't uh you know i was in maybe a few meetings i was in maybe a couple with kipshogi during the elite uh development i wasn't the designer on the elite version mm. it was uh olivier french designer olivier uh and uh um, stefan guest uh, was his design director uh british designer um so I was part of it. Like we had meetings where we're like meeting as a whole team about mm. the whole collection. And a lot of times we're like meeting between ourselves in the advanced team, you know, inline innovation only to solve for the Vaporfly and aligning with the NXT team to make sure it looked like a collection and they shared, you know, like element ingredients, right? And visually and functionally, they, they felt like a collect or like almost like a quiver. Oh, you want to buy... Back then, the Elite wasn't even supposed to be sold. I think they ended up selling. Uh, they commercialized the tooling, uh, and they actually ended up selling that upper. But it wasn't in the plan. It was more like a concept car for the mm. event. And then we had to make the shoes that were going to actually hit the market, right? And the shoes that most runners were actually going to wear, which was the, the 4%. But we definitely tuned it. I mean, when we started the first prototype, uh, I don't have I don't have the prototype. Every, Nike kept everything, but... I do have like old photos. I actually posted on my uh, Instagram one day, like I just found on my phone. Uh, it was very different. Um, the early phases of the Vaporfly 4% uh, do like to different, you know, limitations and things in terms of timing and materials that we could use and things we could do with the timelines we had. Um, it was very different, you know, the tooling was a lot lower. We were still learning how to use the ingredients, still learning the science behind it, as well as the NXT. NXT was solving, again, for the event concept car, right? Mm. When, you, when you bring that to reality and you have to sell the product, you have to make a lot more people happy, right? Well, that, <laughs> yeah, like that, was gonna be, that was going to be my question, is like the, the you're, you're, you want to distribute something en masse and you want to make sure that thing we described earlier, that sort of, that moment when you put the shoe on is a pleasurable experience for the vast majority. So... What yeah, are you yeah. doing as a designer to make sure that that kind of first slip-on experience for when people actually finally got their hands on the commercial version of this thing they'd seen on the feet of Kipchoge, like what were the changes you had to make so that the vast majority of people had that like incredible first experience, like when they first put on the shoes? What were the things that you had to consider? Were there, were there streams of like data and research you had to go through? Was there a lot of testing? Like how did that process sort yes. of uh, unfold? Yeah, there was definitely a lot of testing, uh, maybe not enough because <laughs> there wasn't like enough time, you know, it was pretty tight timelines, like I said, mm. uh, they were not going to move the date 
as soon as they set the date for the breaking two in Monza, that's it. That's our deadline. The Pacer is going to wear the shoe. It's got to work, wow. <laughs> you know, okay. and we're going to sell right after. So, and then you work back, you do a work back schedule and there wasn't a lot of time, but there's definitely enough, you know, enough testing and development and engineering uh, to make a successful product, which I think it was successful enough, you know, very disruptive. Yes. Um, maybe not perfect. And, you know, I wouldn't call it was perfect. I mean, the whole story is this. I had, I'll tell you the, I told that story never maybe on the podcast, but um, so for the Vaporfly, we had not enough time. We, did, we couldn't use the same ingredients they were using on the upper, meaning Flynet. We couldn't do it. They tried early on before I joined the project. It didn't really work. We had no resources to do a Flynet upper. So that's the story. So the initial idea was to do elite Flynet upper sock fit and then take down that those learnings from the concept car and do a Flynet upper to commercialize it. Uh, initially, that's what I thought I was going to do. But then, oh, I don't, I don't remember the reason why, but there was no resources, meaning like flying the programming, uh, knit designer, etc. right, to be part of it. So, okay, now we got to figure it out. What are we going to do? We just have to use materials and things that we can actually develop quickly and make sure it works, right? Mm. So we need a, when you do a broader product, like the Vaporfly 4%, mean you have to satisfy more people. And also keep in mind, it is a unique experience, right? The first time you put it on, mm. first time I put it on, I'm not a runner. I'm like, damn, what is this? So <laughs> bouncy. It feels like I want to jump. I don't want to run. I want to jump, you know? <laughs> um, um, and then, uh, so it starts there. So that sensation, the, the tooling was quote unquote dialed, right? The ingredients were dialed, not dialed like meaning early on when we started the project, doing the commercial version, it wasn't dialed at all, to be honest. And XT was still figuring out things on the on the foam, on the plate for the concept car. And we were doing the same thing at the same time, you know, as an extended team trying to create the commercial version. Um, like figuring out, you know, the stiffness on the plate, durability on the plate, curvature on the plate, um, the foam itself as well, you know, how to manufacture that foam and make sure it works. Uh, everything was still like in development. So, but that was sort of like, we knew what we were going to use on the tool, right? It's Zoom X and a plated, it's a plated tool. That's it. Two parts of foam plated in the middle, right? And an outsole of some, you know, blown rubber or rubber. Cool. That was easier, quote unquote easier. Now, what do we do on the upper, you know? We, we cannot do flying it. We cannot do, no longer can do a, a takedown flying it upper and commercialize it. We don't have the resources. We have tight timelines. So we had to go and find something, like I said, that we knew for sure, or at least we thought we knew for sure, it would work. Mm. So I'm like, well, I don't think it's enough. That was my approach, you know, like, or me and my design director as well. Like, well, we need to reflect on the upper, that underfoot sensation or the ride sensation, right? When you run on that shoe, when you put it on, it's so unique. Back then, it was so unique. Nowadays, maybe every brand has their own version of that, right? But, mm. but remember, 2017, five years ago, I mean, nobody had felt that experience before, right? So, and it was uh, the form of the tooling, you know, elongated, aerodynamic, everything from the expression. Uh, it wasn't, you know, thing. You, it wasn't something you saw in the running space, right? Mm -hmm. uh, everything was sort of the same. It looked similar. There was a lot of uh, homogeneous, you know, like design languages and expressions throughout the, the for the most part at least in training and racing, not like plated, not like spikes, you know, and stuff for like for track. Um, that was a little more progressive and et cetera. Um, so that, and then what are you doing in the upper? So long story short, I'm like, I came up with two concepts with the team 
in a tight timeline. One was like, we do a safe option using ingredients from the the prototype or the, the streak, actually. The streak, not the streak fly, the one I worked on that launched uh, this year, but the first streak, right? The Zoom, the Zoom streak, the mm. Zoom air streak. Uh, for Rio, for the Olympics, because uh, that's the first time we actually uh, tested that shoe, right? The Vaporfly it was in the Rio Olympics. Mm. Uh, Kipchoge was wearing a prototype with a streak upper and the prototype tooling with Zoom X and the plated tooling. Um, so that was the first, uh, I, I believe, the first race or was in the Olympics in Rio. Um, so that was an upper that we knew with that, uh, that mesh, that a thin, light SWK mono filament mesh and the fit band, we knew those ingredients would work. So we need an, an option that we know it's going to work. It might not look amazing. It might not be, you know, extremely innovative. I mean, back then it was a new thing, right? It was mm. a whole collection we did for Rio that used that material for a lot of different reasons. You know, the lockdown you got, the breathability, the lightweight, and you had those transparent yarns through the holes that made it look light, et cetera, et cetera. So it had benefits. So we did an option like that. That was my plan B. My actually plan A for the Vaporfly was what became the Zoomfly SP through Nike Lab. Mm. Uh, that was actually the plan A the, with the transparent SWK, with the transparent hyperweave upper. Mm. They call hyperweave now. It was just a woven uh, TPE, which is a very uh, monofilament transparent yarn that has a lot of stretch and recovery. So it gave you lockdown, but not like a traditional woven, right? That you see in, in hiking or any other piece of footwear that wants like a, a strong lockdown out outdoorsy look woven it was the opposite it was light because you could see everything you saw through it and one of the key benefits of the vaporfly uh it was lightweight right it was bouncy super propulsive but it was super light uh even though it had a lot of foam it was super light it was almost like counterintuitive so we wanted to have that expression on the upper in some shape or form breathability and lightweight right especially lightweight i'm like what's the best way to express lightweight maybe it's to make the upper disappear like you don't see the upper anymore but the upper you see your sock and it feels like you're not wearing anything you know um that was the concept that was the more progressive edgy concept and luckily uh we're, well we tested both with kipchoge with elite runners and it was like 50 50 sort of if i remember right i mean this was a long time ago but if i remember right like Cookie, right? You call Chris Cook Cookie. Cookie was like, yeah, I don't know. This guy liked this, but then Kipchoge preferred the safe version. Of course he preferred the safe version. He ran Rio with that similar material upper in a different design, but same ingredients, right? So long story short, a lot of the runners preferred the safer option. We went the safe you know, route to make sure we could commercialize it on time. The other one, a lot of people liked it, but they were like, oh man, I don't, I see my socks. Like it feels like it's going to, fall apart it was actually strong enough you know it, you know especially i mean these days they still use the same original idea in construction with that you know clear woven material um and ike to this day and actually in other brands as well it's almost like you know became a trend because there was no shoe like that back then you know with with a woven most most uh, running shoes are made of knit material right mm. knit fabrics not yeah. like woven fabrics so using a woven fabric was something we did in like uh, racing uh, spikes, you know, uh, for Rio, they actually did that, but not in like training or, or, or road racing shoes. Right? So anyway, long story short, that's what happened. And then 
uh, and then yeah, the Nike, uh, the 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 option one or the, the option one for the Vaporfly became the Fly SP. We launched it through Nike Lab as almost like a lifestyle bridges, you know, energy bridges performance. Uh, and then later commercialized, and people actually wore it as a racing shoe because um, it had the ingredients. It didn't have the Zoom X tooling, the one we commercialized it. It had the Fly the zoom fly bottom with the react carrier mm. in the lunar core in a, in a carbon plate. But anyway, and then the, the, the shoe that, you know, as the vapor five, 4% became that with the plain B upper safer. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's sort of the story. It's extraordinary. Like there's so much to, yeah, to sort of take away from that and just the, the, the process of it. And I love how, you were kind of taking you you were taking things from different projects and different designs and kind of using them to address a specific problem with one thing and then kind of how the things that may have been slightly left on the table are then kind of repurposed down the line for for something for something else you talked about timelines then i mean what was the length of time so from when they announced the date of okay we're going to do it at monza Breaking two, it's all sort of booked and arranged. Like, what was the timeline from when you knew what the date was? Like, how much time did you have, basically, is what I'm trying to ask. Um, they they only booked the event, like, not... I don't remember how many months before the event. We were already developing the shoe. They were not ready at all. But the the we, we, we didn't have a lot of time. I don't remember how many months. The whole process for this project, for Breaking 2, it was even before my timing. Uh, okay. Like I said, they started that research for the foam, for that experience, for breaking the two-hour. It started with that, right? The whole project started with that problem. You know, how do we break the two-hour mm. marathon? And uh, it started with Sandy Bodecker and uh, the extended innovation team in NXT. So it started there uh, to create the ingredients, the concept, and how to do that. And then, but from the time when I joined, which was, you know, we're still, again, the ingredients for the tooling were there. The concept was there, but there was a lot of work to do in development and design to to bring it to life. But I don't remember how many months. Uh, I think, let's see, I joined running in 2015. I think it was probably a year maybe from when I joined to okay. when Monza was going to happen. I think it wasn't long enough, to be honest. I mean, given the the lofty goals we had and the mm. challenges, um, and uh, the yeah, I, I think it was that, but I, I don't remember all the dates to be honest. Um, it's still extra, yeah. What you say the word lofty, and that's sort of synonymous with with Nike in terms of like innovation and design, the lofty goals, and they came painfully close with that particular challenge, and then obviously managed it um, a little later in in Austria, where Kipchoge did go yeah. underneath the two hour barrier. With you know, we've touched a lot on the Vaporfly, but obviously there's the alpha fly and obviously the streak fly as well, which has also come out, which you were also connected to as well. So with alpha fly V1, that Kipchoge used to go under and get the, the, the one, the one fifty nine um, as part of the Ineos challenge in Austria. Um, were you involved in, in the first version of that or have you just been involved in the, the latest version that's just come out the version two? Um, no, I wasn't directly involved in the first one. Uh, Olivier and the NXT team drove that. Um, someone in the inline running team finished the upper uh, for that one with the Flyknit team. Uh, I was involved in the second one. Um, yeah, the one that just launched. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah. let's get into the second one then, because you've obviously got this sort of iconic shoe just purely by the fact of what it's what it's achieved whilst on the feet of of kip choge 
Um, lots of questions around, you know, sort of innovating it and, and, and sort of uh, improving on something that uh, has been very popular with people. I mean, yeah, wh- where do you start with the, with the second version of that? Like, wh- what were your kind of yeah? What was your kind of foundation that you were you were sort of laying to to build on something that had become so popular and so so iconic with the Alpha Fly? Yeah, I mean, it was um, create being part of the Breaking Two design team, you know, innovation team uh, to bring those shoes to life was challenging, but uh, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, but then making that shoe better, uh, if the first one is great, it's not so easy, right? So yeah. uh, the first one was great. It wasn't perfect. There's always things like the Vaporfly 4%, it wasn't perfect. You know, the upper, some people ran with no socks, got bloody feet. I'm like, damn, okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but um, the, the material the material is kind of brittle on the inside. But anyway, you you know, sometimes you test things with socks and people decide to go with no socks. I'm like, Whoa, okay, sorry. Um, but then the, the Alpha Fly, it was great, but there was improvements you can make, right? And then because I was part of the inline innovation team, um, we started actually my my team. We started with the upper, you know, early on. They haven't even. They were still working on the first one. I think the first one wasn't even in the market. We were already working on the second upper, uh-huh. right? And trying to improve. Yeah. So that started with the upper mainly because the tooling was pretty dialed. There wasn't enough on the first one. There wasn't enough feedback. Um, there wasn't enough. You know, they were still like trying to launch the first one. So we started innovation around Flynet on the upper, right? How do we evolve performance and expression off the upper? Uh, one of the things on the first one or, or the upper of the first one, it was very like, um, it was very like, um, it didn't have a lot of differences in knit stitches and structures. It had like cut and sew pieces for the lining and stuff. So we wanted to make it more pure Flynet and more expressive visually expressive right mm. um and that was sort of the goal so we started innovating around the upper to also make it comfortable um and and, and great lockdown around the foot durable but also wanted to make it all made of flynet remove in, uh, any unnecessary parts to make it more sustainable as well uh, and stuff like that so that's why the, the second one only has like two parts it's a huge part almost like a racing car bucket seat in the back mm. with you know, inlay, foam, there's no like extra parts, you know, there's maybe a heel counter with the overlay and, and that's it, you know, and a four foot part in Flynet, evolved Flynet using similar ingredients, but evolved in the way we designed that a four foot uh, with, you know, laces, lace loops to, to pull and they maybe TPU skins to reinforce the ice day, but that's it. Pretty like pure, right? A toe box maybe. So there's not a lot of parts on that shoe. So that was that. That was it. That was sort of the process. And then the tooling, the the, the second tooling, um, Leo Chang in NXT, design director for NXT Running, he was working on improvements on the tooling on the side. So it was me and him. I was focused on the upper. He was focused on improving the tooling. And then they made testing, NXT testing in Kenya and all that to improve the tooling, improve the stability, transition, stability on the heel because it's pretty tall heel, right? It was kind of a little bit narrow on the first one. You also made um, the first one had a, a sound that he made from the airbags on the forefoot sitting on the rubber and not having foam underneath it. So there was actually this sound that people were bugged about. So on the second one, Leo put a little bit of foam underneath the bags, also added a little bit more foam on the forefoot, you know, 
uh, mm-hmm. which is also good. Uh, one of the only way, uh, the way to make that phone more responsive and more bouncy is to add more foam. There's only so much you can do, right? Until you go too high and then it's unstable, right? And then it doesn't have a good transition from heel to toe. Or if you're a four foot striker, you don't strike and, and toe off, you know, in a stable way. So, and then uh, Leo created the, the initial version, they tested it, and then he transitioned to our team to continue the expression and the function of that tooling uh, and take it to market. I didn't go all the way to the final, final shoe that launched, uh, but the ingredients in the design language and uh, everything that we did up to that point in the innovation is pretty pretty close to, to what the, the final shoe is. Mm. Um, yeah, that's sort of the, that's sort of the, the story. Fascinating. And you've kind of led me lovely onto some of the questions that have been sent in. So we put out a call on the Instagram account Vaporfly Worldwide for people to send in questions. And one of them was, what made you put that extra bit of ZoomX under the pods of the AlphaFly 2? And you just you just sort of answered it there to help address with that that particular get very distinct kind of uh, noise that the uh, the first iteration I, I remember yeah, my my particular pair. You could certainly uh, you could hear me before you you saw me with that sort of slapping noise that they they make. Um, one other question that came in with with the AlphaFly two, and maybe you can sort of talk to this in terms of like you say that the tooling is the uh, a question that came in was why the drop changed from a four millimeter drop in version one to around eight millimeter in version two. Is that is that the ideal offset for a, for a road racing shoe? Is that what you kind of found with your, with your testing and stuff? Well, um, that's a really good question. Um, I don't remember, honestly. I mean, it's been a while since I touched that. And that was like, you know, when I was still working on that shoe, it was almost two years ago. So I don't remember being eight, actually. I thought it was six. <laughs> now that you say eight. <laughs> hey, th- this, but, is, uh, this is from uh, online. So, you know, we, we don't know the, the, yeah, the, the veracity know. of the sources. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. You have to look at the tech sheet on the finished commercialized product. But the last, it wasn't that different from the one and the two. Okay. So unless we, we rock that lasting space, which some people do it, it's not ideal, but sometimes you rock the last, right? If, if it's like six, you want to go a little more, you rock it in space, two millimeters forward, and then you get eight. So maybe that's what they did. Uh, again, between the time I was working on the product, you know, was already in-line timeline, meaning commercialized timelines, but I didn't go all the way. Between that time when we were doing testing and the final test, things changed, right? So I think it was probably like feedback or like people wanting to feel a little bit more forward, you know, sitting like on your forefoot a little more since it's, you know, a shoe for you to run fast. And a lot of people are forefoot strikers or midfoot strikers that, that wear that shoe. Uh, if you're not, it's all good as well. But um, so I believe that's the reason why, but I wasn't there to confirm the final prototype. So I'm not sure what, you know, it was probably feedback from testing or lab testing or like real wire testing. Mm. Uh, I'm assuming that's what it was, but I don't know for sure. Uh, I mean, still, you, you fielded that question incredibly, incredibly well. So so kudos to you for that. Like, I mean, you sort of, again, going, uh, keeping it, uh, the subject area focused on on, on the midsole, in particular, the, that kind of unique and desirable ingredient, which is this Zoom X foam that people, you know, it's like that first time you try it. Like we were talking about earlier, I think everyone remembers their first time in in Zoom X foam because the feedback is so incredible. One question that came in was about the different sort of um, blends or are there different blends of that particular Zoom X foam? So for example, in the Streak Fly, this particular question was saying that they feel 
very soft and responsive, whereas the the sensation you have perhaps on the Invincibles or on the Vaporfly or the Alpha Fly is slightly different. And is that to do with the particular compound? Is it is it mixed in a different way? Is it bl- blended together in a different way, or is that more to do with the particular tooling in that shoe that gives that sensation? Or is it incredibly subjective and one person's feeling of responsiveness will be very different to another person's feeling of responsiveness, if that makes sense? I think it's, yeah, yeah. I think it's a combination of all three to answer your question. <laughs> it's the, the foam is not one compound. ZoomX has different versions. There's like TPE. Uh, there's, um, I don't remember all the compounds, but it was actually two or three versions. Yeah, there's evolution, right? Nike was working on evolutions of, to make it more sustainable, to make it better for performance. It's not extremely sustainable foam the way we make it. We used to make it. So it's, they're trying to improve the process and maintain the characteristics, performance characteristics, and, and, and make it more sustainable in production. Um, it was actually extremely expensive because of that. There was a lot of waste. Uh, so I don't know where they are now, but until I was there, he wasn't figuring it out. But there was in that, there was also different compounds. Also trying to make it, Maybe versions that were a little cheaper, so you could afford to use that foam in more products, right? If you remember, the Vaporfly was the first one to have that foam. It was like two hundred fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much it was in in Britain, but probably I don't know two hundred twenty pounds or something. Something like uh, that, yeah. expensive shoe, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And back then, I mean, most running shoes did not go over two hundred, right? Most running shoes, at least like performance running shoes, not like Air Max and stuff like that. Uh, but so it wasn't that expensive. So, but and we, the, the foam is so amazing that we, we wanted to, Nike wanted to use that in different lower price point products, right? Uh, and the Invincible, I think it's 180 or something, or 160. So, so there's that, you know, there's also a way to, the way you use it, uh, you can use a virgin compound, meaning uh, pure, you know, sheets of Zoom X, then molded into the midsole. Or you can use regrind. You can use like uh, you can regrind the waist and make a midsole out of it, or a core of a midsole. Nike launched recently a bunch of shoes like that, right? Uh, They've yes. been shoes in lifestyle, shoes in lifestyle, shoes in performance running, like the Peg. Uh, forgot the name of the Peg that uh, I was there when they were working on that. Uh, but anyway, the Peg they just launched. Oh, the the, uh, the next next legs. nature or something. The next, the next nature, yeah, exactly, next nature. Um, so there's that, there's different compounds, different ways and different geometries, right? Different stack heights. Um, that's going to change it as well. Your perception of how it transitions, how bouncy it is, how soft it is, right? You know, and, and the other one, like you mentioned, perception, right? Perception is reality. Um, so whatever you feel like when you're wearing the shoe, it's the reality. It's the way you perceive it. And mm. uh, there's nothing we can tell you to change your mind probably, but to yeah. say, no, it's exactly the same foam and same stack. I was like, no, it doesn't feel the same way. Mm. Well, it's just the way you experience, the way you fit, the way you run, your biomechanics, everything can play into into how you perceive it, right? Mm. So, so true. I feel like that's the that's the one to really underline is that the, the perception is such a, a key thing there. So, so interesting. Thank you for that, for that brilliant response. Okay, next question then is to do with the street play, which I know you, you were I- I involved in, um, particularly to do with the, the plate. So one person wanted to know, did you ever try putting a full length plate in the streak fly? And why did you decide on the plate that originally ended up, uh, that eventually ended up in the version that was, that was released not that long ago? Yes. Um, the streak fly, well, when we are like, you know, working on the brief, uh, it was a new product, right? Um, uh, Elliot, the product line manager, also a competitive uh, elite runner back in the days. 
uh, for Stanford. Uh, very knowledgeable, good friend of mine. Um, he was, uh, yeah, we're like debating, you know, what do we do with this project? You know, I was involved from the start to finish. Uh, and uh, it was like, it was a new thing, you know, we just wanted a lower stack height. Uh, almost like, you know, a race issue, but a little lower, you know, a little faster maybe, or like you can feel the ground a little more, you know, which was the opposite of the Vaporfly. Because one of the benefits of these phones, the high stack heights and zoom axe shoes, it's not only performance in the race or when you're training, doing fast training or even training with those shoes, it's recovery time, right? Kipchoge said that at different occasions, like he can recover faster when he wears that shoe, you know? Mm. But some people like feeling the ground a little more. It was also a preference, you know? Oh, I want to be able to feel it, you know, like feel like a little lower to the ground, but bouncy. Uh, so that's sort of the story. And yeah, the plate was in the, the toolbox as one option. I think we did, as I remember, right, we did do testing with and without the plate. And some people felt like we didn't need the plate. Maybe a shank was enough, you know, a, a plastic shank uh, top loaded on the midsole was enough to make the transition a little bit more rigid. That foam is really soft, right? Zoom Axe mm -hmm. in general is a soft foam. Um, um, so that's sort of the story and uh the other one yeah like short short distance too right it wasn't supposed to be a marathon shoe it was like shorter distances 510k that's why it even has that on the on the upper uh we wanted to make sure people understand like you know if you run a marathon it might not you might not recover the same way you would recover if you were wearing the alpha fly or the vapor fly so almost creating a quiver right you have long distance racing elite Alpha fly, then you have the vapor fly that can cross over between marathon all the way down to 5k or training, fast training all the way to marathon. And then the street fly on the map was more like 10. You can run a marathon, but it's for 10k, 5k, and lower, right? And training and fast training if you want to. So that's sort of the story. Um, and the plate and uh, everything, the foam was like also tuned for that for a lower stack height. Uh, and, and also to make a super light shoe. It is the lightest uh, shoe in the Nike range. You know, it's super light because it has, it's lower. The upper is extremely light. We designed it in a way that it made it, you know, one piece super light um, and super sleek as well to make it look like almost like a racing flat meets, you know, a racing road shoe, you know, mm. sort mm. of that blend. And, and yeah, yeah a, a wildly popular shoe and um yeah, people having a great experience within it. And thank you again for, yeah, I appreciate this must be a bit of a busman's holiday for you, but it's absolutely fascinating to get this this level of insight from the design process. And speaking of that idea of design, when you are like the, the streak fly, you, you were kind of involved with right from the get-go in comparison to say, like we were talking earlier with the, with the vapor fly, but when you are designing a shoe, I mean, who do you have in mind when we're thinking about the end user? Are you always, is it the elite athlete or is it the general public? And where is the sort of greatest point of conflict when you're balancing the two, when you're designing a shoe? Yeah. If, it, if we're speaking about like uh, racing shoes, you know, like it depends on the shoe, but there's always that balance you have to find, right? I mean, the, the muse or the elite athlete that mm. oftentimes you call the muse, like if Kipchoge is the muse, for a shoe on the street fly, by the way, he was uh, Julian. Uh, uh, he's uh, damn, he's a Swiss, yeah, Swiss elite uh, short distance runner and uh, an African runner. Uh, yeah, I'm not really good with names, man. It's been a while since I, I talked their names, but anyway, two elite runners, uh, a woman and a guy, and they were like a sharp focus, you know, their insights and what they did and how good they are in 510k. 
Uh, Julie is the world record holder. He was the world record road holder for 5K back then. I think 5 and 10K. Uh, he trained in Africa. And uh, anyway, so sharp focus on that, right? Otherwise, you, you're going to go, you're going to get too many points of views, right? Too many perceptions, mm. too many, like, you have to, like, narrow down to the key top three priorities, you know? Oftentimes, top three sounds like the magic number, you know? Like, top three priorities. What do you want to talk about? What do you want to solve for? And then you focus on that. And to be able to achieve a better result in the end, right? Otherwise, you're like trying to solve for everything. Mm. The shoe will look like whatever and you function like whatever, maybe because you're not sharp focused on the key experience and, and expression you're trying to provide to the runner. But if you start opening up, so you're assuming that it doesn't always work that way, right? But assuming that, yeah, what the elites need, what the muse needs is what everybody else will probably need as well in different ways, right? So mm -hmm. that that's the opportunity, uh, but there's definitely like conflicts there, right? Or it depends. Like I guess it depends on the shoe. You know, mm -hmm. some people, some elites in any sport, they're very like they're like unicorns. They're like, oh, I like I don't know, like maybe it's not a good example, but like low top basketball shoes. Kobe had low top basketball shoes long time ago, right? Uh, most players were playing with high tops, and why do you need more ankle mobility or low top? You know, maybe it's just him. Maybe nobody else wants that. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just trying to give an example. Yeah, like, yeah. No, oftentimes it's... it could, be, it could be, it could be just one guy, you know, or keep showing. He's so much better than most people that maybe what he needs is not what most people need. You know? Yeah, because he's much better than you. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Those kind of so almost like freaks of nature, one of a kind. Like lightning doesn't strike twice in the same place kind of individuals that aren't the rule of thumb for, for you know, every other kind of runner out there. Julian Wonders, I was trying to remember the name as well. It's Julian, yeah, yeah, Julian Wonders. It. Julian Wonders. Yeah, yeah and yeah, Sifan yeah, Hassan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, was, I was desperately trying Sifan to remember. Hassan, yeah, yeah, here we go. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, go. I, yeah, I'm, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I'm not very good with names. Also rubbish yeah. with names as well, but I was like, what's the name? It's Julian Hassan. Um, but yeah, no, yeah, yeah, no, you got it, yeah. Fascinating, like, take on that question, because you're right, like, it, yeah, it totally depends on the shoe, but I look love the idea of calling the um the runners muses i just think that's uh that's wonderful um so kind of zooming out a little bit then and kind of looking to to the future because it feels like you've been really connected to to the future when it comes to to shoe innovation and and shoe product design i mean what what's what's next do you think like from 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 your kind of wealth of experience like we've had the carbon we've had the, the zoom x like what do you think the next innovation will be that we will see on the feet of, of elite athletes in the next few years? Well, I mean, I think those ingredients will keep evolving, um, you know, like the foam and the air. You know, Nike always, speaking of Nike, they always try to use the things that are unique to Nike, like air, you know. It is mm. something Nike came up with a long time. It is a franchise, you know, iconic technology that actually works, especially Zoomware. Um, so to keep evolving that, I was like in meetings and involved in the future of the Alpha Fly for the three, but I, I don't, I can't say much about it. I don't remember everything anyway, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm not gonna lie, I don't, I don't have recollection of everything they were discussed in the meetings. But they were trying to like open up. You know, I think it's gonna come down. If you think like broad is one thing, if you focus on running, especially elite racing. Um, I think it's just keep evolving, you know, these things are making it lighter, faster, uh, but also comfy, you know, and durable, 
which is also sometimes contradictory, right? You're trying to make things lighter and super minimal. And sometimes, well, you get bloody feet because the material is super strong, but it might not be the most comfortable if you're not wearing socks. So, mm. um, and, you know, you can't really, because if you're working on a material that has one layer, so not always is easy to make the backside comfy and the outside super strong or the two work together, you know? Um, so material technology innovation is super key for running, especially racing, uh, for everything. From what we're tooling. So keep evolving the plate idea. Um, keep evolving that foam and, and the combination of foam and, and zoom air, I think, for the future of the Alpha Fly, as well as other, you know, elements, uh, geometries, form, fit, you know, maybe even heel drop um, that could be evolved as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know they were looking like really broad, opening up the spectrum and trying to look at other factors, other things that could lead to to new innovations for the third iteration of the elite shoes. Um, but I think there's a lot of opportunity, um, you know, in theory, I mean, 3d printing could be, uh, easier said than done, by the way, <laughs> a lot of people are like claim that they do 3d printing, this and that, but you know, for the most part, it's not really, if you compare in the lab or actually truly compare, um, yeah, to, to zoom X on other phones, you know, like and to scale it and turn it into like a commercial proposition, uh, scalable, you know, technology, mm. not as easy as it sounds, <laughs> yeah. um, but there's potential there. Uh, there's a lot of work There's, I think I was involved in some projects for running actually, uh, with 3d printing and Nike, uh, testable prototypes that function really well in lab testing and out there. Uh, it never got launched. I don't know why. And, um, I mean, I think I know why it's not that easy to make into scale and make into a commercial product. <laughs> it's maybe easier to make into a concept car or a testable prototype. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity there, um, um, for the future, not, not sure how many years to actually turn into something, uh, cause that changes a lot of different things, you know, in terms of, uh, um, not only, uh, uh, sourcing, manufacturing, the cost, you know, to make that and, and all that and, and, and eventually maybe customize things, right? I mean, mm. like just like Nike ID, eventually maybe you can customize uh, your your ride based on, on, which people try to do it these days with like, you know, orthotics and skinning your foot and doing sock liners and this and that, but same idea, but maybe using going bigger, you know, maybe the way the shoe fits, the way it feels on their foot, even the stack heights could be customized maybe, uh, a little, a little bit of a lofty goal to actually putting, you know, come to make it come to fruition, in a, in a, in a big, you know, big for a, for a big brand, maybe for a niche, smaller technical brand, maybe easier to pull it off, small volume, you know, more mm-hmm. localized, regional. So I think it all depends, but I think those are key, you know, like materials, uh, and just keep evolving the science behind it, right? Understanding recovery, you know, understanding. Uh, uh, how to reduce injuries in runners as well, right? The link between what's happening and just thinking of training and quiver, right? I think that's also maybe the key evolution, not so much on the product itself or a combination of technology innovation for the product, but also how you approach the way you train, right? How you train, training program, uh, of course, everything else that comes with that, nutrition and all that, but like training, quiver, what kind of shoes you're wearing, you know, the timing be- between. Uh, how you train and having that quiver, right? Having invisible to train and have a soft, comfortable shoe that will help reduce, you know, your rate of injuries um, in theory, right? We hope that's the reality. 
and then going to like two other shoes for another one for training, maybe one for racing the marathon and another one for fast training. I don't know, three or four mm -hmm. shoes, which is the, which is what most runners do, right? You don't have one shoe, you have yeah. multiple. Yeah, uh, yeah. So how you combine those guys, how you create that ecosystem and integrate the ecosystem, right? Maybe that's the goal with Nike. That's why the Invincible is there. Invincible should work. In theory, if that shoe is working well with the Vaporfly and with your, the rest of your quiver, you should have an ecosystem of shoes or a quiver combined with your training regimen and, and everything else to, to provide you the best experience possible in the running uh, activity, right? Mm. Training and competing. So I think that's, that's sort of, now that I think about it, I think it's, if you look only at the shoe, might not be enough. I think you need to start looking at the rest of it. And I say that because the, on the Invincible project, I was part of that project early on in the innovation phase uh, from the start with the idea of reducing injuries in runners. That was the insight, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the whole science and the research done with UBC in Canada, University of British Columbia, the same guys a uh, long time ago, you know, like, I'm just telling that story really quick, but like the whole idea of like, you know, stopping pronation or adding support on the medial side and, uh, you know, stopping, you know, overpronation uh, in running for 30 years was the rule, right? From the scientists and everybody, we thought, you know, runners in general, we look at the shoe, oh, this shoe has support, you know, and, and it has that big call out or that harder material post, you know, posting the medial side. That was the rule. And it turns out that that wasn't really the best solution, mm. <laughs> uh, you know? Based on and so, so that's why that product came to us. So that's what I'm saying. Understanding the science and breaking those paradigms uh, that were created years ago. That rule is not forever. That rule is going to evolve and transform itself. And just breaking breaking that with science and research, and then infusing that that idea or those insights into the product and into the the quiver and the training. You know, all together. Mm, gosh. Yeah, very, very, very exciting about what the what the future holds. And you talk, we've spoken a lot about lofty goals, but it feels like they're, particularly when we talk about Nike, it feels like those things are, but perhaps something that might be in our future. And if we were to have this conversation five years from now, might be some of the things that we'd be sort of discussing about. And I'd be, I'd be chewing your ear about. I, I've got to say, Fabrizio, you've been fantastic in fielding all of these these questions and a big thank you to the Vaporfly worldwide uh, sort of supporters and followers for, for sending them in, but just sort of putting like Nike to one side for sort of a final question, just out of curiosity, are there any other sort of shoes out there, any classics, any sort of uh, icons that you'd love to kind of take a swing at, like redesigning, retooling, kind of putting your kind of stamp on? Um, in running or in, 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 a, in anything like is there any kind of yeah like because we talked about skateboarding before and the and the cricket boot and oh. stuff like that are there any kind of classics out there that you'd love to kind of you're like mm, I think we can change this I think there's there's ways to improve it that you'd like to sort of yeah have a go at um, maybe a basketball shoe uh, I do like basketball the style and, and of basketball and the activity so uh, I've never designed a, a signature you know or innovative basketball shoe so yeah that could be cool um yeah okay basketball Ma manifest yeah. it manifest it Fabricio manifest yeah. it put it out yeah. put it out in the universe and it and it might it might just happen um well hey you 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 didn't really know anything about skateboarding shoes before you started making them and designing them and look how that sort of turned out like so I don't doubt for a second if that was to happen that it would be 
it would be awesome, much like this conversation. So thank you so much for for coming on the pod, being such a brilliant guest, answering all those amazing questions. And uh, I look forward to, to getting you back for the, for the sequel purely on skate culture as well for, for that second episode. But thank you for coming on and being such a, a brilliant guest on The Big Room. Hey, Danny, thanks, man. It was a pleasure. Yeah, let me know. If you want to talk about skateboarding, I could talk about that for hours, man. That goes like, yeah, you'd be like a three-hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> A big thank you to Fabricio, and yes, if there is appetite and he is willing, I'd love to do a second round going further down the rabbit hole when it comes to shoe design. I find this topic so, so interesting, but grateful to him for his time, his knowledge, his expertise, and for fielding all of those questions that were sent in so brilliantly. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Big Run and also go check out Vaporfly Worldwide if you don't already follow them already. I'm sure you probably do for all things Vaporfly, Alphafly, Nike, running culture and also go and check out Curated for Runners as well. Big shout out to all of the team there. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll see you next week for The Big Run.